Welcome to the Dr. Wyatt Show podcast for developing a long lasting, happy relationship is the status symbol to achieve and following my six marriage steps, a path to get you there. I'm your host, Dr. Wyatt Fisher, a licensed psychologist specializing in marriage counseling. Today, we have a special treat. We have a guest on the podcast today named Amber. How do you pronounce your last name, Amber? Dawson. Dawson. Uh, she's a therapist up in Canada, so she's going to share with us her expertise on conflict. Uh, so let's turn it over to Amber. Um, Amber, introduce yourself, whatever you'd like for us to know about who you are and what you do. Yeah. Hi, I'm a psychologist up in Toronto, Canada, and I work with couples. I have a practice called Ember Relationship Psychology, a podcast called Relationship Psych, the podcast. Um, in the last, I don't know, 10 plus years, I've given over 150 professional presentations to a number of different audiences. And I just love working with couples to help them communicate better and have a great relationship where they feel loved and heard. Awesome. Awesome. Amber, what got you into the field? What made you interested in couples work? Um, it started out, I, um, was doing an undergrad in psychology just because my parents told me I had to go to school or they were going to take away my car. So it started out uh, totally <laughs> not because I was interested at all. But what uh-huh. ended up happening is in my family system, my brother was um, a teenage drug addict. And so my family, by the time uh, he was 17, we went, we put him in a long-term treatment center where I had to become a participant because I lived in the home. And so I had to participate about 12 hours a week, wow. which was a lot. Um, and then that became a big part of my life for nine months. I went on to work at that treatment center for a long time and I finished my degree at some point in there. And I went on to then do a master's degree and it was in marriage and family therapy. So initially my focus was in family therapy. And I really cared about that because of what was happening in my family system. Fast forward a few years, I got married and I quickly got divorced and I realized I do nothing about how to have a happy, healthy, successful marriage, but I had all this schooling. So what I did is I went to my books that I had, and I was much more focused on the family side during school. And I went back and I looked at my books and I thought, let's learn what the research says about how to have a happy, healthy, successful relationship. And let's give that a try. And as I went through my journey, I thought, wow, this stuff is really powerful. I wasn't taught it. Like I went over some of it in school, but that was, I was literally in a master's in marriage and family program. That's where I learned that, you know, (laughs) the only experience I had was in my family system when it came to marriage and what I saw on TV. And I knew I wanted, my parents did well, they're still married, but they had, you know, our our family home was a very difficult situation. Um, And I knew I needed more than that to have the marriage that I wanted to have. And I thought, okay, if I don't know these things, there's probably so many other people that don't know these things. And how do I make this information simple, easily digestible so that other people can have a really loving, special relationship where You know, it is the kind of thing that you want to write maybe a story about, or you do want to hear where you hear a song and you're like, yes, I have a special love like that. Like, how do I get that? So that's where then my focus really changed from being about families to then being about couples as I really dove in and strove to have the tools and the resources to make myself a great partner and to choose a partner that was going to be great for me. And then for us to work together as a team. And so I just, now that I have a love that I adore and I'm like so thankful for, I just want people to have the resources, the skills, and the tools that I have. Hmm, wow. That's a great story. And that, that also speaks to how I think there can be pressure on those in the helping profession to have a perfect relationship themselves. Yeah. Um, right. This expectation, True. like, well, if you're, if you're a marriage therapist, you must have no problems ever in your own relationship. Uh, do you ever encounter that with couples you work with? Oh yeah. Um, even like uh, when I got divorced, someone commented on my personal Facebook personal Facebook. I thought she was a couples therapist. Like, yeah. And, and yeah. a person first, right. like, I'm, I'm a real person. Like I sit, it's hard, right. Cause I'm sitting and I'm talking with couples all day and I turn off my screen. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. 
I walk downstairs, I talk to my husband and like, you know, there's moments where I have to excuse myself and walk back upstairs and like do a redo of the night because I just came down on bad grouchy behavior and led into blindsiding him with some criticism or something, which I know better than to do. Like I'm a, I'm a person that we're people as well. It's not like yeah. I have magical powers or doing something hokey. I'm like just a person who has some tools and some training and like knows a few things about a few things. And I have a lot of choices over my behavior and alternate paths to behave right. that I know what the research says is probably helpful or not, but I am a real person outside of all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The way I, <clears throat> the way I think of it is you can't really change your, your human instincts and your human emotions that are just involuntary and spontaneous, but the more educated or trained you become, it does create alternative ways to express those impulses and urges and feelings that you do have. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And your presentations, what kind of presentations do you do up in Canada? Um, so there are things like anxiety, practical intervention skills, depression, practical intervention skills, counseling, practical intervention skills, things like mm -hmm. that. And are those conferences for businesses or for couples or? Um, these have been for like uh, frontline workers in different agencies. So oh, they could wow. be like youth counselors or they could be... Um, I don't know, government employees, or they could be, you know, could be a mental health professional. It could be a boss. It's, it could be a parent. They're for different people in different areas. Yeah. Well, I always appreciate getting to know other helpers in the field because it feels like we're co-soldiers yeah. um, on the battleground trying to help couples stay together or how to help couples have better relationships. Um, staying together sometimes not is not the best choice based on the you know level of toxicity in the relationship. But I always appreciate getting to know other people who are in the helping profession and hearing their story and why they're doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Me too. Yeah, because yeah. often I think it can be individual silos where there's all these different helpers, but there's not much communication between the helpers. So I appreciate the collaboration on the podcast. Me too. It's so fun to do it with other people in the profession. You get it to meet is. really cool people this way. That's right. So today we're going to talk about conflict. So conflict is one of those things where I always say conflict is inevitable. How we respond to it is optional. Yes. Um, and that's, it's really true, right? So if you're with a partner, it's a matter of time before you have conflict because you're two imperfect people, you know, rubbing shoulders day in and day out. COVID really highlighted this where there was no escaping the imperfections in you and your partner. Um, and unfortunately that made divorce rates go really high um, among other reasons. But anyway, so conflict is this constant thing in long-term relationships. People often are perplexed by conflict. You know, I've read research that shows how couples handle conflict greatly predicts if they're going to get a divorce or not. Um, it's something we're not taught. You know, how do we work through conflicts constructively? Yet it's it's always there, right? It's this constant thing that pops pops its head up. And even if you're learning skills, this is an interesting paradox. You want to have less and less conflict, but the less conflict you have, the rustier you can get at your skills on how to handle conflict. So when yeah. it does come up, then we can miss, they'll do a lot of missteps. So anyway, it's just a constant topic that I talk to couples about, and I'm sure you do as well. Yeah. And so I have some questions here to pick your brain on to see how you uh, handle this topic of conflict conflicts. Yeah, let's pick, let's do it. So the first one is in your opinion, in your experience, Amber, uh, why is conflict so common for couples? Yeah, I think there's, I, I was thinking about this. I think there's kind of four, four reasons I was coming up with. I think there's probably more than four reasons, but off the top yeah. of my head right now, here's the four that I was thinking about. So the first one is we have um, needs, dreams, feelings, something that we feel like isn't being met. And then when we bring that up, so either how we present 
that unmet need or that feeling to our partner or how they respond to that can spark uh, a conflict. So I think that's a lot of the time, the heart between a lot of where things go wrong is there's some something that's not being met very often. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second reason is there's an underlying vulnerability, something that is going on that is like, uh, if we kind of think there's like gasoline on the floor, we have an underlying vulnerability. So maybe already in my relationship, I'm not feeling respected. And maybe on that particular day, we've got all the gasoline on the floor. I'm not feeling respected. My partner has left a spoon on the mm-hmm. counter, just a spoon on the counter. But for <clears throat> me, it signifies disrespect. Yeah. And so that's like kind a- of the, the spark that lights that gasoline on fire. Yeah. So it's like a trigger to a pre-existing feeling that's already there. Exactly. Yeah. And so that triggers a vulnerability in me. So then I bring it up possibly in an unhelpful way or my partner responds in an unhelpful way. So we have the conflict. Um, a third reason is misbids for connection. So a bid for connection is anything we do to get our partner's affection, attention, connection. And these can be about anything, nothing. So if we're imagining my, my husband and I are sitting down, we're watching TV for the evening. I kind of dart upstairs and then I come back downstairs with the dog. I'm like, the dog really stinks. Let's wash him. But my husband keeps his eye glued, his eyes glued on the TV, doesn't look over at me. So he's missed that bid. I've just said, I want to wash the dog. He's watching TV. He hasn't responded. He hasn't turned towards what I've just said. So maybe I follow up and I'm like, hey, pay attention to me. And he responds, stop being so aggressive. So we've missed the bid. And I think that happens a lot in conflict. I think Gottman says in his book, um, his book, What Makes Love Last, and he has a book on turning towards and it asks John Gottman, what's one of the number one things couples fight about? Nothing. And he goes on to explain that one of the big reasons couples fight are these kind of squabbles, these mismatches in our communication, these normal things where we don't turn towards and they kind of turn into fights. Yeah. Yeah. And so a bid, yeah. How are you defining bid? Just so everyone listening knows kind of what is a bid? A bid is anything I do to get my partner's affection, attention, connection. So it could be a small bid, like saying, let's imagine my my husband and I are both in our house there. And I'm like, oh, look at the sky outside. It's really blue today. It doesn't seem like I'm like directly asking him for anything, but I am talking to him kind of I'm talking a turn towards would be if he kind of just looked and was like, oh yeah, the sky is blue. I'm still bidding for him to respond. Yeah. So sometimes they're kind of, they don't seem, um, it's not overt. Like I'm really trying, but they are, there are these little moments. So that could be a bid for connection. Equally a bid for connection could be, could I have a kiss? Can you scratch my back? Want to hang out later? We can have more direct bids for yeah. connection as well, but they could also be subtle. Right. And the subtle ones are definitely easy to miss. They are. Yeah. You have to be a she... perfect person. Sure. But they're easy. Yeah. They're very easy to miss. Yeah. Especially if you're not aware of bids and you're not looking for bids and you're not thinking about bids. It's kind of a new con. It's not a new concept because I know John Gottman talked about it, you know, a while ago, but for a lot of couples, they've never even heard of what is a bid. No. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's something interesting you put on people's radar, like that they're there, they exist. Cause I think a lot of people, so we can do three things when it comes to a bid, we can turn towards, which was responding. So if I'm like, Oh, the sky is blue. My partner can go, Oh yeah, blue sky. Cool. So he's turned towards, you can turn away, which is just ignore me or kind of be like, I'm talking about the sky is blue. And he's like, Oh, don't forget to call your mom back. So kind of responds with something else unrelated, or we can turn against. So we can be like, shut up, stop your nattering, or there you go again, pointing out the sky. Um, (laughs) Yeah. 
And, and those kinds of things, you know, they take away from connection. So we have three ways that we can respond, turn towards, turn away, or turn against. And the one that really fuels connection is when we turn towards each other. But yeah, I think the whole bid conversation is such an important one for couples to have to just ask each other, you know, in what ways do you make bids to me that I miss? You know, what, how do you make bids? And sometimes we're making bids and we don't even realize we're making bids either. Totally. Um, and then for couples to know that they do have those three and those three choices that, on how to respond to a bid where you can turn away, which you ignore, like you said, turn against is the worst, right? Where you're like aggressive in response or turn toward where you, you know, try to meet that bid. Um, that's such a powerful day-to-day moment by moment thing to be mindful of. And it's actually really important. So in Gottman's research, what he found is couples, uh, I think in his love lab, I'm pretty sure the study was after six years of marriage, uh, found that couples that stayed together, turning towards each other, 86% of the time, whereas couples Mm. who separated or got divorced, I think they were only turning towards each other 33% of the time. Interesting. So that's, it's a big difference. So you don't have to be a perfect person, but you have to be turning towards a lot of the time. Right. Like more times than not. Yeah. 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 Super. Yeah. What are your next points for the, why conflict is so common for couples? A meta emotion mismatch. So what that is, is we have differences in how we express emotion. Some of us think expressing emotion is productive and helpful. That's on one end of a continuum. So if you think of a big continuum, big line, on one hand, we have expressing emotion is productive and helpful. And on the other side of that, we have expressing emotion is not productive or helpful. So what the Gottman's research again has found is couples that both believe expressing emotion is productive and helpful, those couples tend to do well. If you have couples that are both on the side of the continuum that expressing emotions is not productive and helpful, those couples tend to do well. But where you can get into conflict is when you have couples that are on opposite sides of the continuum. One person thinks expressing emotions is productive and helpful, and the other doesn't. Those couples tend to have some conflict and they struggle in their partnership. Mm -hmm. And how are you defining expressing emotions in that context? So that can be different emotion to emotion. So that could be, you know, if you think of sadness, how someone expresses sadness, is that just saying sad? Is that tears? But it's it's different couple to couple and how they express that. Um, So we often have to talk about what does expression of emotion mean to you? And how do you think about that expression of the emotion? Mm -hmm. So it can mean different things to different couples. And when it's similar, again, it's not a problem. It's when it's different. So some people, for example, can be comfortable and fine to say, I am sad. I was sad about this thing that happened in the past without emotional, like affect or expression. So they feel like that's okay. But if their partner expresses emotion and they're very tearful and it's very overwhelming for them, that can make them really uncomfortable. So sometimes it's just the difference in how that emotion is expressed. So it can Mm -hmm. be different couple to couple. Yeah, that's interesting. And I can see how that would become a diversity issue and maybe even a sharing power issue of, you know, how can we learn to, even if we have different ways or different philosophies on expressing emotion, how can we respect those differences and even maybe meet in the middle Mm -hmm. so that we have like a common language around emotion we're trying to strive toward, even if we start in opposing positions on that topic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And did you say the fourth one already or was that the third? Yeah, that was the fourth one. Okay. And then my second question, what are some of the biggest mistakes from your experience that you notice couples make during conflicts? So these ones are ones that if you've scrolled on your Instagram feed lately or read a self-help book, you probably heard them and you're probably getting the gist that I do a lot of Gottman work and what I'm saying already. So I'm level three Gottman trained and I'm going through my Gottman certification right now. So it's all I'm thinking about is everything sure. Gottman. Yes. And uh, if you work with me in my practice, I'm using the Gottman method. So you're going to hear Gottman out of my mouth all over the place. So the the four horsemen are so are very commonly things that are happening in conflict really, really fast. And so we can slide into them. So what those four horsemen are, 
They are criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness. So criticism is when we point out a character flaw or a defect in our partner where we're describing our partner, their intentions, like you're so lazy, you left your shoes at the door. Contempt. This is when we're acting like we're superior. We're better than our partner. We're putting them down. So this is saying something like, what do you think I am? Your slave? You've left your shoes at the door again. Pick them up. I'm not your mother. Um, stone, uh, so we defensiveness. I didn't leave my shoes at the door. So this could be, you know, you're defending. So you're playing innocent victim or you're counterattacking. So defensiveness can be, I didn't leave my shoes at the door. The dog must have done it. Or so you leave your shoes at the door too. Or stonewalling, conveying your displeasure or disapproval through emotional or physical disengagement. So you could be standing there looking at your partner, not saying anything, or you could literally just get up and walk away. So when we do these, like, for example, if I'm upset about my partner leaving the shoes at the door and I say, you're so lazy, you left your shoes at the door. It's really hard for my partner to go, oh, you're right. I'm lazy. They're not going to respond that way. So it's hard to turn towards your partner's bid. So if I criticize, if I lead with criticism, there's a very small chance my partner is going to hear me. Now, it's easy to do. We've talked about other feelings, other like triggers, other needs being unmet. Maybe I have a need to feel respected or valued or for a clean house. So I have to think about how do I say that without blaming and describing my partner? Because that's going to get in the way of me getting that need, that the true need that's important across. And so there needs to be some responsibility for how we say things. And then equally for how we receive that complaint. Because if I say to my partner, you know, feeling... I just have this need for a clean house and it makes me feel like we're partners when you when we both put our shoes away. Can you please help me put your shoes away? It's it's going to be easier for them to respond non-defensively and be like, okay, I, I hear you want the shoes away. Sorry, I didn't do it again. I can put the shoes away. If we can state our needs and our feelings in a way that is more neutral or at least positive, or sorry, at least neutral, possibly positive, it's going to help our partner to respond without defensiveness. Now, the listening partner has some accountability for how they show up as well. Um, but it's really important to think about how do we express our complaints? And of those four horsemen of the apocalypse, those four things right there, I've always read that contempt is the most toxic of the four. Is that it what is. you've read as well? It is. Yeah. 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 Which makes sense. Right. Cause then it's, it's conveying like I'm above you, you know, you're inferior to me. You don't deserve my respect. And it's kind of dripping with sarcasm. And, yeah. and I think, and I think if we're honest, you know, most of us lean toward one or two of those four horsemen um, just naturally, maybe yeah. from how we were raised or what was modeled to us growing up. And so most of us are probably guilty of one or two of those doing one or two of those the most when we're getting upset. Yeah. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. And that's sobering, right? Because I know in his research, he talks about, you know, the more you do those four, the more likely you're going to divorce. So, okay. So I was the kind of person that believed the myth. Never go to bed angry, talk things out. Like uh -huh. I was a firm believer in that. And when my husband would call a break, oh no, I would follow him. Like I was, <laughs> I was not going to give a break until I read, until I went to the relationship research and read that this was not helpful, Yeah. but it felt like my soul was aching. Like, mm -hmm. like I was crumbling. Like I couldn't breathe when he was walking away from me in those moments. It was so hard for me to let him go. Cause I didn't think he was going to come back. Yeah. And what I had to do was rely heavily on what the research said, even though I didn't believe that this was going to be helpful and do an experiment for myself. But what I, what I tell my couples and what I asked my husband to agree to was to promise you're coming back after a certain amount of time. Yeah. Even if it's just to say, I still need a break so that I could come to believe that he was coming back. Mm -hmm. 
And over our years together now, I can let him go and it really doesn't phase me because I know he's coming back. But earlier on, I resisted that because I believed you should talk things out and I was afraid he wasn't going to come back. Yeah. And so I find it so important that the two things, one, you call break, but you have an agreed upon time that you're not figuring out in that moment when someone calls break, that you have a discussion outside of conflict, that you're able to talk about how long are our breaks, who comes back, what does that look like? And then you have to adhere to the agreement. Sure. Yeah. I always tell couples the minimum of the break should be 20 minutes because normally it takes at least 20 minutes to get out of fight or flight or freeze and no longer than 24 hours. Because some people will use it as an excuse to avoid like, oh, I'm still flooded. Can't talk now. And it's been like three days afterwards. You're not Um, flooded anymore. You're just avoiding it. You're just stonewalling. Right. You know, and people do struggle with that, you know, because of that, the, you know, the old proverb or the old phrase of don't let the sun go down on your anger. Mm-hmm. Right. And so people are like, oh, you know, I, we need to resolve this before bed. And so I just tell people, if you, if you feel that you struggle with that, just remind yourself that the sun hasn't gone down somewhere else, right? Somewhere else. I love somewhere, that. Yeah. Another the part of the world. Shining over somewhere. <laughs> That's right. The sun has not gone down over in who, who knows where. Um, but yeah. And it's a, it's a trade-off, right? Because if you go to bed and it's unresolved, you're not going to sleep well, but when you're tired and you're trying to resolve something and you're flooded, it definitely is not going to go well. Yeah. And so, but it's definitely, it's better to take that pause, relax, and then come back. So yeah, I appreciate you highlighting that. So number three, my third question here is how can a couple successfully work through conflicts? What is the answer from your perspective? So how can they successfully work through conflict? So there's a, there's a few things here. So one is, so you talked about repair attempts. So we're all going to have missteps. We're people. There was one day I came downstairs from my office. I walked downstairs. I saw my door was unlocked. I immediately turned to my husband and said, how come you didn't lock the door? He said, how do you know I didn't? How do you know it was me? And in my head, it was like I floated outside myself watching myself. And I thought, do you want to fight Amber? Or do you want to repair this interaction where you came down and accused him of something? And I thought, ooh, I'd like to repair this. So our repair statement in this case was to say something like, it was an agreement. You're right. It could have been either of us. So a repair statement is something that we do in a conflict conversation to help kind of break the tension, repair the damage that has been done, take a pause. Um, and so there's a number of different ways that we can do that. And our repairs are, can be used all the way through our conflict conversations. Usually they work better at the beginning and when we're not flooded than they work when we are flooded. And when we're flooded, that's when we want to call a break, which is a kind of kind of repair. We're taking a break to repair what's been done so we can re-engage in the conflict conversation. Um, So repairs, the other thing is when your partner makes a repair, you want to try to let them make it. Another example I have is one day I came home from work. I don't even remember what I was mad about, but I know I walked in the door and started criticizing my husband. He looked at me and gave me this look. And before he even said anything, I went, wow, that came out way harsher than I expected. Can I please leave and come back again? And he went, okay, which was which was an ask for him to let me redo that because I knew in that moment I was wrong. I don't even know what I was mad about, but I vividly remember walking in the door yelling at him. So that's, that's asking for a redo. Mm -hmm. Now we can say things sometimes like maybe our partner, they've started criticizing us. So we're feeling under attack. We can say things like I'm feeling attacked. Now here, the focus is to put it on how you are feeling without describing them. So I'm feeling attacked. Can you say that again in a softer way? Or I'm feeling overwhelmed. Can you say that again more gently, please? You're, you're stating how you feel and asking what, for what you need without describing your partner, which can be really hard to do if you're feeling attacked. Yeah. So like what I find 
it can be helpful is to pick a couple phrases or to kind of have a few things you like and to use those. But repair attempts are something that can really help you work through conflict, whether that's agreement to breaks, um, trying to agree on something, ask for something to be rephrased. Those can be really helpful. Other things you can do to helpful work through conflict is um, when your partner has stated a complaint, just listen. You just have to listen. Just kind of if someone puts out a complaint, like I'm frustrated you didn't lock the door. Let's imagine I said that well and didn't come off attacking. Um, just to listen. And even, and so you can say nothing to make it better though, because you're turning towards and say, yeah, I get it. I'd be, I'd be frustrated too. I know you told me to lock the door and I didn't. So it's to listen or validate something. If you want, you can up level taking responsibility, but it's often just being there. If you can offering some validation for some piece that makes sense, it doesn't mean you have to agree with the whole thing, but that can really help your partner feel heard. So it's important a lot of the times when you're talking about something with your partner that you try to explain your thoughts and feelings, what you mean as honestly as you can without trying to persuade your partner right away. Right away as well, often we get into persuasion. We try to persuade our partner to see our point of view or to solve it. And actually that gets in the way of conflict resolution. If we just recognize we're different people with different beliefs and values, different thoughts, different world beliefs, we're going to disagree on things. But to give space to that you both have different equally valid points of view and to just be able to share that. Now, when your partner shares, like, again, you can offer some validation, you can listen, you don't have to solve it, you don't have to change their mind, just listen. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to do. It is, especially when you're feeling criticized or attacked. Um, I appreciate that point you just made with just respecting your partner's experience, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think that is a common trap where if we're the one that's upset, there is kind of this natural human instinct, I think, to want to convince our partners that they should see it the way we see it. Mm-hmm. that they should understand where we're coming from, that they should be able to put themselves themselves in our shoes and see why what they did was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then when they don't, then we get even more upset. Mm-hmm. And so I like your angle there of, you know, letting go of that need to persuade, but instead just having the freedom of let's both, you know, share our experience and let's learn to respect that experience because they're going to be different experiences. doesn't mean why, my way was right or your way was right. We're different people, different wiring. And so that's okay. Yeah. That that can be a real hard sticking point because we want to be agreed with, like we want to be right, but sometimes you're just different. You don't see it the same Mm -hmm. way. It can be nice if your partner is willing to offer some validation, like that point makes sense. Or yeah, I see how you got there. Like that can feel good and that can help you feel understood and got even when you have different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. And that part you said about your own experience, your own story of, can I do a redo? Um, I was watching, uh, I think it's called the tooth fairy with Dwayne Johnson with my 12 year old daughter a couple of weeks ago. And there's a scene in there where he, he says something to this woman that he's dating and it makes her really upset and he has the power to reverse scenes. And so he's like, he pushes some button and he's like, blah, 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 and he goes backwards <laughs> and then he shows up again and she doesn't know he's doing it over, but it's like, he has these do-overs in the movie. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's similar to what you did. So that was, yeah. made me think of that. Yeah, that's so cute. And the thing is like in real life that we don't have a rewind machine. So the key is if your partner's like, wow, that came out bad. Can I try again to let them, to let them try again? Yeah. Even though you know that they just kind of fudged it up the first time. Sure. And that's taking, I mean, that requires an impressive level of awareness and ownership for yourself to say, I just did that wrong, or I just, that was harsh, or I just came, came at you too strongly. Can I redo 
Um, that in and of itself, you know, most likely will help your partner say, okay, because you're already taking ownership for what you just did. That probably hurt their feelings. So it's probably making them more likely to say, okay, I'll, I'll give you a redo. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So good. So the fourth one is how can conflicts strengthen relationships? What's the silver lining? So the silver lining here is they can help you understand each other. Often on the other side of a conflict is a better understanding of each other your needs, your dreams, your wants. And even sometimes after a period of like hurt, it can even serve to revamp connection and intimacy, even desires sometimes, sometimes. But the real key here is they let you um, understand each other and, and maybe solve or just hear each other out. Now that is more true of times where you do conflict respectfully and you avoid things like the four horsemen so that you just don't do damage. Now, even sometimes on the other side of a four horsemen fight, there can be a deeper level of understanding and trust, but that conflict is inevitable. Like you came from different beliefs, values, you have different ideas about how things should go. You're going to fight. It's going to happen. But if we listen to each other and we're both intentional about wanting to hear each other's views, we want to know each other better. We can create a more connected relationship where we're both happier because we learn that deeper level of each other and we can be better partners for each other. Yeah. If you're both willing. And I like your point though, that you said, if you do, if you handle conflict well, um, in particular, you know, a lot of good can come out of it because it can tap into, you know, deeper feelings, deeper core needs, things that have been pent up and that haven't been expressed. And obviously, yes, that better conflict is handled, the more likely it's going to have that result. But the image that came to my mind hearing you talk was like a forest fire. And so like a forest is on fire and that's like the conflict but what happens to the soil after a forest fire is it becomes really fertile and mm -hmm. then new growth can come and it can be amazing soil to grow new things. So in a way, that's almost how conflict can be, where it can be like this fire, but if you handle it well and repair it well and talk through it, it can create this fertile soil to become better and healthier than you were before that conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Love, love that metaphor. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Good, Amber. Well, anything else? Any final comments? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I want you to remember is like your needs, your feelings, whatever beneath your conflict is very valid. Yeah. You can have that and that's totally okay. What you are responsible for is how you present it to your partner. And like, you don't have to be a perfect person. You're going to make mistakes sometimes, but when you do own them and do your best to treat your partner, even in conflict, like you love them. So that might mean like working on how you deliver messages, how you receive messages. Um, because your feelings underneath are valid, but how you present that information can be destructive or can be helpful. Depends on what you do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Amber. Thanks so much for spending time on the podcast today. If people want to learn more about you and follow you, uh, what are the best ways for them to get in touch? Yeah. So, uh, you, my practice is Ember. Now this is a trick. My name is Amber with an A. My practice is Ember with an E. So Ember Relationship Psychology. So if you head the, one of the ways I'm most active is on Instagram. So you can head over there at Ember Relationship Psychology, or you could go to my website. where you are going to find my podcast, my blog, some YouTube videos. You can find me on YouTube at Ember Relationship Psychology. Um, and yeah, so any channel, but at Ember Relationship Psychology, head over the website, you know, I got free guides, all sorts of things. So yeah, the website and Instagram are the places I'm most active where you can find me or the podcast Relationship Psych. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Wyatt Show podcast. If you enjoyed the episode today, be sure to click the five stars and leave a review. And remember, your marriage is alive. 
So if you care for it and nurture it, it will grow. But if you deprive it and neglect it, it will wilt and die. The choice is up to you. Take care.